Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11. Um, talking about the first, um, you know, history and the first time man has ever left the, uh, the surface of the earth. Um, and, and I think in a lot of our history books, uh, it hasn't been... A lot of people would think, well, the Wright brothers, but we know that's with airplanes. But I think there's a double standard there. There's almost saying that the first time man has left it was the Wright brothers. But even the airplane example of the Wright brothers is highly debatable by a few other countries uh, who was first in flight. But unabashedly, this is the first time that uh, a uh, uh, individual has left the earth in in a, in a balloon. So... Um, so it was in a hot air balloon. Imagine, in 1783, they made a hot air balloon. So the first hot air balloon flight was September 19th of 1783. The first aerostatic flight in history was an experiment carried out by the Montgolfier brothers at the Chateau de Versailles in 1783. At long last, man could leave the surface of the earth below. September 19th, 1783 is a key date in the history of humanity. Ever since Leonardo da Vinci in the 15th century, men had dreamed of flying through the air. In the age of enlightenment, it finally happened. Joseph and Etienne Montgolfier, born in Aladiche en France, began to experiment with lighter-than-air flight in 1782 using a piece of fabric billowed aloft by a fire of wool and damp straw. One of their demonstrations attracted the attention of the Académie Royale des Sciences, which asked them to repeat their experiment in Paris. In 1783, Etienne carried out an initial tethered attempt, which was successful and which he repeated a second time seven days before the demonstration in front of the king at Versailles. Unfortunately, the balloon tore open and he had to switch it back together quickly. The balloon was made of cotton canvas with paper glued onto both sides. It measured 18.47 meters by 13.28 meters wide and weighed 400 kilograms. It was named Le Révelant, after Etienne's friend, Jean-Baptiste Revelon, the director of the Royal Manufacture of Printed Paper, who had designed a motif on the sky-blue background decorated with the king's insignia. Two interweaving L's linked with decorative elements, all in 18-carat gold powder. The demonstration was held in front of King Louis XVI, and the royal family in the palace forecourt, which was packed with curious onlookers. As a precaution, it was decided to use animals for the flight. I mean, Louis did not want to be known as uh, someone who propagated uh, putting humans up, and if, if it occurred in a tragedy and anyone got killed, then it may tend to tarnish his reputation. At that point, he didn't have a good reputation to begin with, but nevertheless, uh, he said no humans, so they actually put three animals up in the basket. At the blast of a cannon, at 1 p.m., 
a sheep, duck, and cock entered the round wicker basket, tied to the balloon by a rope. Eleven minutes later, a second cannon shot rang out, heralding the liftoff of the basket. Amidst much applause, the balloon left the ground and soared 600 meters into the air. Damaged by a rip in the fabric, it descended slowly eight minutes later after traveling 3.5 kilometers and came back to earth in the woods at Vacrusson. Later, Monsieur de Rosier, a physician and future aeronaut, hurried to collect and examine the animals. They were, not entirely expectedly, alive. The sheep, duck, and cock were hailed as heroes, heroes of the air, and as a reward were given a place in Versailles, their own pastor by Louis XVI. The ladder up to the basket was now ready for the first human feet, and so, in front of the Dauphine at Chateau de Lomet on the 21st of November, Monsieur Rosier became the first man ever to born airlift. A new page had been written in the history of mankind and aviation. So what makes this particularly interesting to me is that um, in my time in Paris, um, I was a gilding apprentice. And uh, oh, a few months into the apprenticeship, I would, as I was entering a, a courtyard going back to the mid-16th century, I would see a plaque on the side of the building, and it was engraved in bronze. And, you know, as you looked up and I, I examined this massive door, this door was 18 inches thick of wood, and it was put together with bolts and uh, tree nails, and, and it was arched, and the king's carriage would come th- through here. This was in the 11th arrondissement, where the king would come down once a week to look at the new art being made by the artisans on the outside of the wall in Paris. And if he found someone who he really liked, he would bring them in to live at the Chateau de Versailles to become uh, an official part of the king's entourage of artisans. So in, in going back, I started reading this plaque in French, and it said in the balcony above, and I look up and it's a very small balcony, maybe comes two feet out by four feet wide with a wrought iron fence. And it was one of the Montgolfier's brother, Etienne. It was one of, it was his apartment in, in Paris. And he let the doctor, Benjamin Franklin, um, which they'd become very close friends during this process, um, the process of the development of the bloom. And Franklin was a great proponent of of, of flight. And uh, and it is said that uh, Franklin actually, while um, having dinner with the Montgolfier brothers, uh, one a, a designer and, and the other one an engineer. And remember that the Montgolfier brothers go back, their, their family goes back some 500 years in Paris of paper making. They made paper paper making for the for the Ming, you know, the emperors of the Ming dynasty and and the, the czars of Russia. So they produced the finest classic laid and, and various classically handmade papers in the history of the world, beating down cotton cloth into a pulp um, by uh, you know water water powered machinery to produce this wonderful paper. So their family goes back 500 years, so that's where the money came from. Initially, they wanted to build uh, the balloons just out of paper. And uh, 
they tried that and they, they cut the pieces out of very heavy paper and they covered the entire outsides with say a high glue and and then glued the pieces together and they found that it didn't hold and then they thought about putting cloth over the paper or paper over the cloth. So they finally settled for making uh, a cloth paper, paper combination. And it's a huge balloon. I mean, it had a 35 foot diameter um, and it was decorated as I just said in uh, this uh, cobalt blue with the, all the king's uh, ciphers and uh, and uh, ornamentation uh, in gold and in gold powders. So a very beautiful balloon. But one time as I was getting back to that, um, Franklin would occasionally dine uh, one or two times a week at, uh, you know, the Etienne's, uh, Etienne's house. And uh, there was a fireplace there and his wife this one particular night had a Blosson shirt there and the the hot air was rising through the shirt and it almost looked like the shirt was, uh, which was tethered to a hanger, but the shirt looked like the shirt was floating back and forth and it was fully, uh, uh, what do I want to say, it was fully engulfed in the, in the, the hot air which puffed it out to its maximum dimension, the arms and, and the, the bot, the thoracic area of that shirt. And it gave uh, Etienne uh, pause for thought, saying, what is causing that to happen? Is it the smoke in the fireplace? Is it the hot air? Is the combination? And the three of them, which Franklin was the third, started talking about doing a hot air balloon. So that was the impetus of creating a balloon. And um, remember that Franklin sat as a guest in that uh, that house up on the second floor, and he watched the first lifting of uh, of a, of a animals first off the ground, and then a human being, Rosier. Um, so very, it, it literally changed the world. Just think about airplanes that have gone, and uh, commercial airlines today, and the Wright brothers, and all that. First time animals and or a human being had ever lifted off the face of the earth, and Franklin was writing about it. And uh, until a few years ago, all the information about this was very scarce. Throughout the French government, the information was extraordinarily scarce. And uh, it was found in the National Maritime Museum in Southampton, England, that Benjamin Franklin wrote everything from the, the way the sky looked that day, how large the crowds were, what people were wearing, how they cheered, the rising of the balloon, the beauty of the balloon, the backdrop. He wrote everything about, he even did sketches of the balloon, sketches of the insignias. and and uh, So if it wasn't for Benjamin Franklin, we would know almost nothing about the first time animals and or human beings took off the face of the earth. And it's all written down. It's all secured in the uh, National Maritime Museum in Southampton, England. So anybody wants to go see it, it's... Uh, it's about 10 pages, and uh, it was secured there for many years, and no one knew it was there until about 20 years ago. So um, it, it kind of kicks my story in being a, a Franklin aficionado. And uh, as many of you know out there, I, I spent uh, a few years in Paris apprenticing under various artisans. And I I came back, and I started re-engaging my studio somewhere around 2005. And then uh, about a year or so later, I went back, and it was Franklin's 300th birthday. 
And the amazing thing to me was in Paris for Franklin's 300th birthday, that four museums linked each other together. So like the, uh, the Arts and Metier and uh, the Musée de Carnavalet and two others, they linked each other that they didn't overlap. They all had Franklin memorabilia because the amount of that information was huge because Franklin was even liked more than the king when he was trying to secure, he was our official, unofficial diplomat, trying to secure arms and monies from the French to help us defeat the British during our revolution. So that's when Franklin was over there and he'd again have dinner with the Montgolfier brothers. So I go over um, on Franklin's 300th birthday, the year of, and uh, four museums are interlinked. And there's nothing special. It's amazing. Nothing special in the Franklin Institute. Nothing special um, anywhere in America um, about Benjamin Franklin. And how sad is that about his 300th birthday? So it took the French to aggrandize him during this period. So nevertheless, I, I haphazardly found this tour. Uh, I was doing uh, some study at the uh, Art and Metier. And uh, so I got through that, and, and that was wonderful, uh, you know, knowing some of the instruments Franklin used to develop the Gulf Stream. They had some of those there, original instruments. And that took me to the second musée in this tour, and that was the uh, Musée de Carnavalet, and, uh, which is really a decorative arts museum. It's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, anybody has a chance, please go. But going in there, they had a special, two special rooms of Franklin. And uh, in this, I'll never forget, there was a, a female, and she had white gloves on. And, and if you wanted to touch, there was engraving, metal engraving plates, you know, somewhere around 8 by 11, something rough dimension like that. And I saw, and I'm, I'm going through them after I put the white gloves, and I'm looking at it. And, and uh, again, Franklin's 300th birthday, so I'm looking through there. And I see this Franklin carrying a tall case clock under one arm, but it's huge. It's bigger than he is. And it's the strangest looking tall case clock case I've ever seen. Um, the, it's basically, it has a very high base, maybe 36 inches high, extraordinarily wide, maybe two foot wide. And it kind of rolls, the sides roll up into the, what would be the midsection. But it's a continuum. It's all one piece. There's no hood. It's one huge piece of furniture, one huge carcass. And Franklin is carrying this. And, and as I studied this, I was amazed. And it said in the engraving, this was, a, this was a gift. Franklin had commissioned two of these in the 11th arrondissement of Paris in commemoration for the Montgolfier brothers first in flight. So he goes to the 11th. He finds, he finds furniture makers to build the clock cases. He designed it. And then he went down to a clock maker in central Paris to, for the mechanism. So... I'm looking at this, and it looks so familiar to me, but it's it's and it's such an odd-looking case form. And I thought, I believe I had that, because in my collection at the time, I had 125, 175 tall case clocks. And it seemed to me that I may have purchased this a number of years ago, and there a lot of them are buried back-to-back -back against the wall. So this is probably the only time that I was in Europe, particularly France, that I wanted to come home quickly. I wanted to see if... My thoughts were telling me what I really had. So it ended up to be a clock that I'd purchased over 10 years ago at a yard estate sale. I'm driving in northern New Jersey, and I see this strange clock, and 
it's a tag sale and I stop and I made an offer and I kept counterbidding, counterbidding and I got the clock and I brought it back. And so the notable thing about the clock is it's very strange design. So the other interesting thing about this clock is that in where the mid, just below where the mid door is, there's an M in a circle, in an oval rather, an M for Montgolfier. Now that M I've photographed extensively. I've taken molds of it. Um, it's not carved in relief carved. The uh, around the M has been leveled down. So the M, the, the material for the M stands proud. And uh, it's almost in a, in, a, in a very small coquille or shell. A little shell is carved about an inch long. And then there's a break. With a, with a little adjoining piece of wood, another coquille shell. All these shells link up to create this very large M carved in the front of this clock. And it's something that you never forget. So here I see it on a clock engraving that was used to create pamphlets on the street of Paris in commemoration of the first in flight. So here I have a clock in my collection that actually was one of the two clocks that Franklin had commissioned, which they were identical clocks for the Montgolfier brothers in the 11th arrondissement, which was right next or, you know, very close by or in the vicinity of where he was sitting um, up on the, uh, the balcony to watch the first in flight where he took his, his, his notes down, his memoirs. So absolutely fascinating, fascinating stuff. And uh, we're going to be doing... Uh, a, a TV episode for Roku TV on this, uh, probably be an hour segment, and we're going to analyze the M, uh, analyze the clock movement. It's a three-train movement. It strikes on the quarter hours. It's operating off of four bells. So it strikes on quarter hours. You know, one bell on the quarter, two bells on the half hour. It strikes on three bells on the three-quarter hour. It strikes all four bells on the high hour, then it actually strikes the hour. Just say it's three, three times. And then at two minutes after, in kind of French Morbier style, it strikes again. And that was because for the artist or for the craftsman or for the farmers, if they were reliant on their, their tall clock, they put the windows up in the house to hear out in the fields. If they missed the first couple strikes, they waited two minutes and would strike again. So it has all the right features for a very, very advanced Morbier mechanism. So, uh, but anyway, so that's the, uh, like a coincidence of life. And I sent uh, photographs and uh, some of the, uh, some of the molds I made of the M for Montgolfier. I sent it back to the musée, to the curator at the Musée de Carnavalet. And uh, they confirmed that it was one of the clocks that Franklin did indeed had made during his stay in Paris in commemoration for the first in flight of the Montgolfier brothers. Uh, no one knows where the other is. So, uh, so just a gem and uh, one of my favorite clocks made in Cerise, French wild cherry. So um, just a great story attached to the Montgolfier brothers. I feel like uh, I have a little bit of part of that. So uh, it's wonderful stuff. Greg Perry, the historic preservation is signing out. Uh, pass along history. Thanks for listening.